But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high and he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, and saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite classes uh, throughout college was a class called Social Psychology. And I was a psychology major in college. Uh, I took a lot of math classes as well, but didn't finish that degree. Um, but I was, a, I was a psychology major in college. And in this class, my, my teacher was a man named Scott Hutchins, Dr. Scott Hutchins. And he was the chair of the department. And like a classic psychology professor, Dr. Hutchins was eccentric. Oh my gosh, he was eccentric. He, would, he wasn't that old. When I look back on it, he was probably close to my age now. But he would do crazy things. And being the chair of the department, he got away with it all. So one thing that he would do is during other professors' lectures, he would march into the room wearing full Jedi garb with two lightsabers, point at another student and throw the student a lightsaber and challenge them to a duel in the middle of the lecture. Just interrupt it. You see, his field of study was studying bizarreness. He wanted to study the effects of bizarre behavior on people. Another thing that he did in one of my classes is he climbed up on the table where he was teaching and started singing, my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. He was an odd man, and so we were in for an odd semester of social psychology. Because Dr. Hutchins' theory about social psychology was that you could teach everything that you needed to know about social psychology merely by teaching about cults. So if you've seen all the Netflix documentaries, you know everything you need to know about social psychology. And so what he did, we didn't do a, a study of cults, we didn't look at all these different cults. No, we created a cult because it's Dr. Hutchins. And we became the monkey shine cult. And he did all of these things to reinforce cult behavior. He said, no longer will you call me Dr. Hutchins. You will now call me monkey messiah. And so every time we were to see Dr. Hutchins anywhere, even off campus, I saw Dr. Hutchins in Walmart one time and I was like, what's up monkey messiah? And he therefore responded with my given name, which was not the given name given by my parents, but was the given name from him, which was Rain Man, because I took math classes and also was in psychology. He would do other bizarre things with this cult. Class. Like we had to dress all the same. It was part of our grade. <laughs> he said, you need to wear yellow to this class. We were the monkey shine cult. You need to wear yellow. And he did all of this to teach us the power of sameness. You see, in a cult, they don't celebrate diversity. They celebrate uniformity. 
Everyone in the cult is to act the same, speak the same, be the same. And somehow, some way, when everyone is the exact same, this organism grows in the cult. And so through high control, the thing grows, but you know it also often crashes very hard. And I wonder how often our churches slip in to a little bit of cult-like behavior. I think anyone listening to the podcast that I mentioned a few weeks ago, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, will know that though that was a church where a lot of great things happened, there was some cult-like behavior going on at times. That was encouraging sameness. That was being very controlling of the way you thought and the way you acted. Church, the scripture today is teaching us that there is joy in unity, but not in uniformity. And that God uses our diversity of gifts to bring about the maturity that we all desire. As believers, we long to become mature believers, seasoned believers. We want to be like a tree planted by streams of living water so that when the seasons come, we will not fade, we will not wither. We want to be a tree that's growing up like, a, like redwoods where the root systems become intertwined with one another so that we can grow taller and greater and more beautiful. That is what Christian maturity looks like. And what Paul has to say today is that it's not through sameness that we become a mature church, but it's through a diversity of gifts that we become mature believers. So let's dive into this passage. I have two points for us. The first is a diversity of gifts, and the second is the path to maturity. Let's dive in. First, uh, first we're starting with a diversity of gifts. God uses a diversity of gifts to bring about maturity in his church. I know a lot of people who literally say, and you might have heard the same thing, I don't need the church. I can mature as a Christian on my own. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm reading my Bible. I'm just fine, thank you. Anybody know anybody like that? There's a few folks. The rest of you are just too shy to raise your hands. And then I know other people who might not say that with their lips, but they act like it. Anybody know anybody like that? Oh, maybe we are that person from time to time. Here's the thing, friends. If you have every spiritual gift, if God has gifted you in every way, then you do not need the church. We need you a lot more than you need us in that case. Because if you're growing without the church, if you're saying, I don't need the church to grow as a believer, that's you saying, I have everything I need to reach maturity. Therefore, God has gifted me, oh, extreme me, in every way for me to reach maturity by myself. It puts a different spin on it. It makes us think about it a little bit differently. Because church, we need one another because God has given us a diverse set of gifts. I'm not gifted in every way. I need brothers and sisters to encourage me, to match me, to challenge me, to compliment me where I am weak. It, that's why I need... Brothers who are leading this church with me. Because I am not a gifted enough leader to lead in every way. And to lead perfectly in every way. I need diversity of gifts in my life. 
It's a beautiful thing. Everyone in the church has been given a gift by Christ to build up the body of Christ. Isn't that fantastic to think about? That every single person here is both needy and needed. We need you. We need you. You're here for a reason. God has you here. And we need you. Verse 7. But by grace, but grace, not by grace, excuse me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This grace that he's speaking of is not the same grace that he's speaking of in Ephesians 2. Sometimes the Bible uses the same word for different meanings, like live and life. Sometimes we have that sort of thing in our language as well, where we have words that mean different things that are the same word. And so here when he says grace, he's talking about this is a special calling from God. This is a gift from God. So grace is given, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us. Every Christian has a gift from the Lord. Every Christian has a gift for the Lord that is necessary for building up the body of Christ. Maybe your gift is not as visible as other people's gift, but it is nonetheless necessary. And you do not have every gift. You are given a measure. You know, Christ had every gift. And so if you claim you have every gift, that you don't need the church, you're basically claiming that you're more like Jesus than everybody else at the church. We need one another. We're both needy and we are needed. When we say that someone is gifted, that usually points to the beauty of that person. That person's really gifted at guitar. Our band, they're really gifted at music. But when should it ever be that when someone has a gift that the glory comes to them? The very nature of the gift is the gift giver is the one that receives the glory. And so when we say that we have been given a gift from God, it is not to bolster us up, but it's to bolster him up. It's to point to him. And that's what this writer has to say, what Paul is telling us. Verse 8, he says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now here Paul is quoting from Psalm 68. And in that psalm, the psalmist predicts that there will be a great victor Come and deliver the captives of Israel and ascend on high. Now, the original readers, when they read that, they probably thought about a great warrior, a warrior king, much like David, who would deliver the the captives, the the physical captives, the political captives of the day, and ascend on high. When you see the Old Testament talking about ascension, oftentimes they're talking about the path to Jerusalem, which stood on a huge hill. So every way you went to Jerusalem, you had to ascend. And so the king sat on high there. But Jesus, man, he flipped the script because it it goes like this. He didn't ascend by being a victor, by being a, a, a warrior. He ascended by being subversively poor, subversively descending. That's what it says here. When you look at verse 9, he has this little aside, and it's a little confusing the way he says it. It's, it's in parentheses here. He says, in saying he ascended, What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is the very nature of Christmas. 
this season that we're in, this Advent season. The theological teaching of Christmas is that of the incarnation, God made flesh. And it is this, that our God did not stay on high, but that he descended to be with us. Isn't that beautiful? That our God, King of kings, Lord of lords, was born thus in a lowly manger, made to be our friend. That he was not born in a palace, but that he was born in a stable. That he was not born of a king and queen of this world with all the jewelry, but he was born of an unwed teenage mother. Our king subverts everything we know about earthly rule and reign. He subverts everything we know about grandeur and power because he came as weak and helpless and humble. And he laid down his death. And the point of his enthronement was on a wooden cross with nails through his hands and his feet. As he breathed his last, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Our God is humble. And the reason why he gets to ascend is because he has descended. And today, he has ascended back into heaven. And for what purpose? Verse 9. Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Oftentimes when we talk about Jesus ascending back into heaven, we think about how he has left us. Jesus has left us alone here. He's gone back into heaven. Now God is distant. But what this says is God is actually nearer today to each of us than what he could be in his bodily form because he has sent his spirit to fill all all things so that he might be with us and that is where we get this idea of gifts that his spirit has filled all things and he has gifted us in unique ways each and every one of us to serve his body for the maturity of the church and so then paul starts to list out some of the giftings. Now, if you grew up in church, you probably took one of those spiritual gift inventories. Anybody taken one of those before? A few folks in here. That, that's like BuzzFeed quiz for Jesus, all right? It's not always the best way to discern your spiritual gifting, but it's a fun way to take it. It's like a holy Enneagram test that you might take. There's at least five lists of spiritual gifts in the Scripture. They're not completely the same each time. It's like Paul is kind of throwing different ones out there. So I don't think we have an exhaustive list of gifts, but I think that a gift is just anything from the Holy Spirit given to you by God that you can use to serve the body of Christ. And so what he does here is he does list five leadership giftings of the church. And he has a reason for doing that. He starts with the leaders and he says, verse 11, and he gave the prophets, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The apostles and prophets were the ones that were starting new works. The apostles are the authors of the, of the New Testament. They were starting churches in different cities. The prophets are people who were hearing new revelation from God and speaking that new revelation from God into the church body. And those are still present with us today, people hearing revelation from God and speaking it into being never contrary to the Scripture, but always in accordance with the Scripture and what we need to hear from God at that moment. The evangelists, these are your rank and file 
missionaries, the people going into new places to evangelize those places. And then he says, the shepherds and teachers. Now, this is a little bit of a different Greek formation when he gets to shepherds and teachers. Up until now, he has not really used a conjunction. And then when he gets to shepherds and teachers, he uses the, the Greek conjunction chi, which is and. And so it's not necessary that he frames it like that. It's not like the Oxford comma or something like that. It's not like our language where we have to say and only at the very end of the list. But here he's combining shepherds and teachers and basically saying that this is one role. And it's, the word for shepherd is poemen, which is a, the Greek word for pastor. It's where we get the word pastor from. This is actually the only time that pastor is referred to as a gift in the entire New Testament. Sorry for your Greek lesson this morning. We just have to dive into it sometimes. And so this role of shepherd teacher, most commentators, and even your Bible, I think, most of the Bibles, yes, mine is, is footnoted, it says, or shepherd dash teachers. Uh, it's a very good reason for us to believe that this is one office. And the shepherd teachers were for the people, they were the people that were just taking care of the regular means of the church. They were the ones that were responsible for the everyday preaching and teaching of the local church, for the shepherding and the caring and the provision of what's happening in the local church. Now, why did God give these men and women these gifts? Because I don't think that all of these are limited just to men. That's not what this passage is about. I'm not going to dive into that right now. We'll dive into that some other time. I think that he gave these gifts to equip the saints for ministry. Verse 12. Look at it with me. The goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Many people look at the church like a spiritual marketplace where you come to receive your spiritual goods and services from the pastor. That the pastor imparts these spiritual goods and services to you, and then you go about your week and live it normally. But the scripture says that the job of the pastor is not to impart spiritual goods and services, but the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know, I am not responsible for doing all of the ministry here. You are. That's what this is teaching. I'm not responsible for it. We all are. And it's my job to equip the saints to use the giftings that the Lord has given them for the works of ministry so that we might receive and achieve maturity. We have an every member ministry here. Everyone has a responsibility to everyone else. A lot of new folks here may not have found a place to serve yet. And we have places for you to serve with a welcome team, with kids, all kinds of different things that you can do, worship team. But let me just say this, as long as there are people in the church, there's a way to serve in the church. Who in your life has God given you to encourage, to be patient with, to bear with? Who has God given in your life to encourage the faith of, to build up? These are the best ways and the necessary ways for the church to exercise their gifts. Because God has given us a diversity of gifts so that we might reach maturity as his church. Now let's talk about the pathway to maturity. The pathway to maturity. What does it mean to be a mature Christian? How do we get there? Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ... 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I want to talk about what it means to be a baby Christian and then talk about what it means to be a mature Christian because that's what he's talking about here. He, he says, we want to reach mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, we're never fully getting there. No one ever arrives, but we want to become mature so that we may no longer be children. And then he describes what a child is. The beautiful thing about Christianity is that everyone comes in on equal ground. You can be a seven-year-old child trusting in Christ or a 74-year-old astrophysicist with three PhDs from Harvard and MIT, and you both are children in Christ. No one comes in with a leg up. Everyone comes in as an infant. Everyone comes in immature. There's nothing wrong with immaturity. No one would say, five-year-old, you're acting so immature. That is immoral of you. No, it's just immature. Young is young. And there's, it's not wrong, it just is. But it does require more patience with our immature brothers and sisters at times, as it does with our children at times, more patience. How do you know if you're a child? Because here's the thing. Um, I know plenty of 30 or 40-year-olds who are not mature adults. And so therefore, just because you've been a Christian for a long time does not mean that you are a mature Christian. Time does not equal maturity. It's not something you can just coast into. It's not like physical maturity where you can just expect to, you know, if you're a, a man, you can just expect one day to start growing facial hair for most of us. That's not the way spiritual maturity works. It must be cultivated. And so one of the questions that you can ask yourself for if you are a spiritual child is this. Do you think you're a spiritual child? If the answer is no, I don't think I'm a spiritual child, you probably are. Or can you think of a time when you were a spiritual child? You see, the only way that you can know if you were a spiritual child or not is if you can look back and say, man, what an idiot I was. Look back and say, I was acting childish. And then the older you get, the more you realize, the more mature you get as a Christian, the more you realize that you're constantly making poor decisions and acting childish. I think the most mature of us are the most honest and realize how childish we are and how much we need one another. What does Paul have to say about immaturity here. He says first that immature Christians are unstable. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. It means that they're unstable. They've been tossed to or fro by the waves. Children are unstable. Children are oftentimes fickle. One minute a kid can scream, I'm never going to be your friend ever again. You're not invited to my birthday party. And then you respond, hey, you want some ice cream? And they say, yes, you are the best dad I've ever could imagine. Children are unstable. They're fickle. They're tossed to and fro by the waves of what is around them. So are spiritual babies. Spiritual babies have really high highs and really low lows. And a spiritual baby can go through a high high and a low low in the same day. And like I said, it's not bad. It just, you just, 
as if you have been there, you recognize what it is. And it's good to see this in yourself. To see that you need to be moving toward maturity. A spiritual baby is tossed to and fro by the waves when their life situations hand them a stormy day. They are not able to stand firm in the storm. Their life situations dictate how well they're doing spiritually at that moment. So if you ask them, how are you doing? And it's like, oh, it's been really hard. This happened, this happened. It's really discouraged my faith. That is a sign that you're being tossed to and fro. It's like a, a tree with very shallow roots. Immature Christians are also gullible, so it says. It says that they're carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. I love kids because you can con con convince them of anything. I want you to try it. That's your homework assignment for this week. Find a child and convince them of something silly. Try to convince them that you are a celebrity or that they are, uh, that they're, they're actually taller than you are. They just don't know it. Something silly like that. Children are gullible. They believe almost everything. And so do spiritual children. There are televangelists that have made millions upon millions of dollars on spiritual children because they say, you need to send me your money for this little bit of snake juice that I'm going to send you in the mail. I need an airplane. Send me your money so I can buy a second airplane to fly around the world in. My ministry is that important. These messengers from Satan are taking advantage of spiritual children. And we need the church to be the church so that we can be rooted and grounded in love and so that our brothers and sisters who are immature might have the mature brothers and sisters around them to practice their gifts and help them to not be so gullible. Immature Christians are looking for a shortcut. It says that they're carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by the craftiness in deceitful schemes. Kids are always looking for a shortcut. If you tell a kid, go clean up your room, seven times out of ten, they're going to go upstairs and they're going to kick all the mess underneath their bed. And it looks clean. It's not exactly what you were intending when you told them to clean up their room. They were looking for a shortcut. And for us, when we fall prey to craftiness and deceitful schemes, we're looking for a shortcut to joy and satisfaction that is apart from Christ. Things such as sex, money, power, success, these are things that will give us a shortcut, a temporary feeling of joy and satisfaction. But it is not the lasting, mature feeling and just plain joy that we have in Christ. So children are gullible. Children are fickle. And children are looking for a shortcut. Now, how do you get to maturity? Spiritual maturity, I have something really groundbreaking for you. This is, this is amazing. It's going to blow your mind. Spiritual maturity comes through regular, old, boring Christianity. 
Spiritual maturity is not exciting. Spiritual maturity comes through the ordinary means of grace. It, it comes through hours and hours of going to church services, of being with the people of God. Spiritual maturity comes from hours of Bible readings that may not seem fruitful at the moment. Spiritual maturity comes through hours and hours of prayers that feel unanswered. Spiritual maturity comes through frustrating conversations where we're required to bear with one another. And spiritual maturity, Lord willing, comes with a few great insights and moments of just intense joy and satisfaction that we can have in Christ in the Word. But the maturity of it is really boring, just as real maturity is. There's this rule called the 10,000 hours rule that Malcolm Gladwell wrote in, in Outliers, his, his hit book a few years ago, lots of years ago. And he says it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything. And so if you want to become a chess grandmaster, you must spend at least 10,000 hours studying chess. If you want to become the next NBA star, you must spend 10,000 hours shooting free throws to become an expert. How many times has, has uh, Stephen Curry stood in the gym and just shot the free throw or shot the three-pointer, which is more like a free throw for him? It takes hours upon hours of really boring activity to reach maturity. No one arrives. That's why it says, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So we have to continue to endeavor in the faith and grow in our knowledge of the Son of God. I wish that there was a shortcut for you. But the reality is, it just takes life on life. And the, the greatest shortcut is this. For us all to be regular and meeting together and encouraging one another and utilizing our gifts to encourage the gifts of other people. The best shortcut to your spiritual maturity is for you to look out for the maturity of those around you and try to push them forward as you're equipped for the work of ministry. Through our diversity of gifts, God brings maturity. And so I have this question for you as I close. And it's this. It's, it's very simple, but it's, who are you becoming? It's a question that we've asked for the past two years during the pandemic. Who are you becoming? Are you growing in maturity? Or are you growing in your love for shortcuts? Are you growing closer to Christ? Are you becoming more patient? more kind. A lot of church activity does not necessarily equal spiritual maturity. We have to look at our hearts and see that we're becoming more shaped into the image of Christ. Each week we practice a, a simple meal that reminds us of profound truths that are necessary for our souls to achieve maturity. Because this is something that we do together. But we recognize that we do it as a diverse body of believers together. And this meal, it represents the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. And each time we take it, we're being reminded of what Christ has done for us, that he has died on our behalf and he has been made and he has been resurrected so that we might also be resurrected. Let's stand and pray together, church.
Father, we pray that you will make our church a mature body, one that is leaning close to you, who longs for you more than we long for anything else. Help us not to take shortcuts. Help us not to fall prey to human cunning or to not be subject to the waves tossing us to and fro, but help us to be like a tree. God, we pray for maturity, that this church will last for decades upon decades, if not longer, because you have brought this body to maturity and bound us together in brotherly love for one another, patience with one another, enduring our trials and temptations. And God, as we come to your table, communicate to us, help us to remember that you came down to be with us but that you have not left us, but you have ascended on high and filled us with your Spirit so that we all now experience the miracle of Christmas in our own lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.